And happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Midday. I'm Tom Hall. It's Midday at the Movies today with our dear friend Ann Hornaday, film critic for The Washington Post and the author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but anytime I get a chance to talk to Ann Hornaday, it is a dear diary day. So, Ann, in advance of some heavy journaling that I'm uh, anticipating for tonight, uh, welcome to the show and Happy New Year. How you doing? Thank you, Tom. Happy New Year to you. Doing well. Good. So um, Jed Dietz is not here today. He's traveling, so he couldn't join us. But And we did talk to Jed. Jed and I talked a month ago about the troubles that the Maryland Film Festival are facing. Um, at that time, they had decided to suspend uh, and defer the, the festival itself, the Festival of Films that happens every May. They're not going to do that in 2023, they're gonna. They said they were gonna sort of regroup and hopefully get it back together for the spring of 2024. And since then, they've also decided to suspend all of the operations at the Parkway Theater. They have laid off uh, their staff, uh, both the part-time and most of their full-time staff, um, while they regroup, rethink, uh, and kind of reimagine their business model. So this is bad news for. Uh, Baltimore, it's bad news for the Station North Arts and Entertainment uh, District over there. The Charles Theater uh, is right down the street on Charles Street, and then the Parkway Theater uh, up Charles Street a little bit uh, more north, uh, right at the corner of Charles and North Avenue, a major intersection in the city. Uh, So the theater is going to be dark for a good bit of the time, other than the time that uh, Johns Hopkins University and Micah use it for some of their classes. But um, this is not the only uh, movie institution uh, around the area that's that's encountering problems. Uh, is that right, Ann? What, who else is having some, some uh, rough waters to navigate these days? Well, it's... Um there are at least a couple of festivals that have also hit pause. One of them is AFI Docs, which was uh, the local festival in Washington, D.C., a beloved and, you know, a, a really important institution in the nonfiction filmmaking world. Um, and Full Frame, another really important nonfiction, uh, longstanding documentary festival. And, you know, I think everybody kind of has their own reasons and their own imperatives Um to make these the right decisions to make. I know in the case of AFI, that's the one I'm the most familiar with. Um, you know, I think the pandemic, as it did for individuals and other institutions, it just allowed people or in some cases forced people to really rethink their mission and what they're doing in life. And, um, you know, with the with the change in viewing habits and the change in theater going and live theater going. Um, I know on the part of AFI, they're contending that they are sort of rethinking the whole idea of what a festival looks like, you know, what, you know, should it be, um, is the kind of three or four days, consecutive days of people sitting in a live theater together, watching a bunch of movies, is that obsolete? Is there a better way to do it? Is there, you know, an, is there a better way? Maybe. I mean, here's a, I guess this is the sort of, you know, the glass half full version of the question is, is there a way to sort of change the layout of the live festival to make it more accessible, like th- the way that festivals have been accessible online? You know, I mean, 
a lot of these festivals, when they went online as a sort of attempt to just hang on, found new audiences. Um, and it was kind of a, a whole kind of new, they formed new communities. And so then when they come back live, it's like, okay, who's our community? Is yeah. it the live community? Is it the online? Is it both? And how do we accommodate everybody? Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. Um, and, and you know, the, the uh, part of it, and Jed and I talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, the the branding of it when you say the Maryland Film Festival, people you know for twenty something years knew it as this thing that happened every May, and then they built this theater, the Parkway Theater, which is a beautiful uh, set of a few theaters, and uh, that opened what in twenty seventeen I think, and uh, now the Maryland Film Festival runs a you know working movie theater uh, that shows that tried to show movies uh, every night of the week, um, so it's been open for four or five years, you know, three of which have been consumed by COVID. Uh, it's really difficult, as you say, to, to find that community. There are some places around the country where these art house movie theaters have done quite well. I used to live in Brookline, Massachusetts in the late 70s uh, in an area called Coolidge Corner. And there's a theater there, the Coolidge Corner Theater, um, which was a mainstay of, of our neighborhood. Um, and it's still... Uh, a mainstay of that neighborhood, and it's thriving from what I can understand. I think Jed uh, would agree. Um, it, places like the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline or the Walker Center in Minneapolis, do you have a sense of what it is that those folks are doing that has allowed them to survive COVID and to, uh, you know, really uh, to, to just, just be sort of um, insurmountably solid? Yeah, I mean the the the, the um the Coolidge Corner is really to me the gold standard um when you talk about independent theaters, nonprofits that have just um become a hub in their community, not just for movies but just culture and for gathering. And I know that that was always the goal with the Parkway because it has that wonderful lobby and the deets, you know, the, uh, the, that great little bar. And it was always meant to be that kind of convening space. Um, and I think that's the, the, the Coolidge Corner has, has done that just gorgeously. And one of those few theaters that during the pandemic, um, actually expanded, you know, not only did they not contract, but they expanded. They had a very robust because they're so, you know, I think they've been around long enough and, they're so alert, like they really know their audience. They know their community like the back of their hand. And so they knew just how to reach out to them. They knew how to program. They knew what that audience wanted during that period. And then at the same time, they're undergoing this kind of a major capital campaign to add screens. And um, so, you know, I, it might be kind of, it's aspirational to want it to, you know, want to get that big. But um always, always, always I come back to community and just knowing your audience and knowing what they want. And, um, you know, like I think the Coolidge, like the Parkway, you know, they have kind of a mix. They have a mix of first run stuff. Some of it's a little bit more mainstream, like you've got your Steven Spielberg, your Fablemans, but then you've got your your classic art house, you know, little foreign language documentary and art house movies that are the, the soup and salad of the art house world. Um, but they've also... I've gathered that they've had a remarkably good luck playing stuff that's already out on streaming. You know, like they did very well with the Bo Burnham movie that had already been on Netflix, 
but they thought that their audience would come out to see it and, you know, would love to come out and see it in a theater. And they were right. So I just think when you know what your audience wants and you're creative and you don't kind of necessarily color in the lines all the time and you can kind of say, well, just because it's already out or it's on TV or it's on streaming, it's still something that people, you know, would really have a lot of fun coming out on a Friday night to see. Yeah. Um, so it's just that kind of nimbleness and um, flexibility that I think has, has made them a success. Yeah, and let's hope that, um, you know, the mayor and uh, some of the big institutions like Micah and Hopkins who are involved with the parkway, at least in a tangential way, uh, can come up with a solution. I mean, in Coolidge Corner, uh, again, some of these basic things we talk about all the time when we talk about economic development, the Coolidge Corner is on the green line, uh, the MTA in uh, Boston. You right. can get to the Coolidge Corner very easily from anywhere uh, in the Boston area. Yep. So even if you live downtown, you live in Kenmore Square, you live uh, by the by the park downtown, you can hop on the Green Line, it'll go straight to the Coolidge Corner Theater, it'll take you 10 minutes, sure. and it's just easy to get to. There's a bus stop right in front of the Parkway Theater uh, on North Avenue in Charles, um, but, you know, people uh, who are driving, and Baltimore is a driving city rather than a uh, mm -hmm. public transportation city, uh, complain that there are fewer places to park than they'd like and, you know, that kind of stuff. So they got to figure all that stuff out. And let's just hope that they can because um, it's important. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you've said, film festivals in general, I mean, as a genre, are really important to the film industry, perhaps even more important now that, you know, people are making fewer films. There, uh, there were 50%, half the number of films made uh, or released this summer than last summer. I mean, it's just the, the volume of, of what people are, are able to see is way down. Uh, and the festivals are really important, uh, perhaps more important than ever. Yeah, it's really true. And also we've seen, and I think it's kind of connected, um, we saw a real dip in attendance when these movies did open theatrically. And as usual, it's usually at this time of year, right? It's the end of a year, the beginning, during the awards season. And some of these little art house films, things like Tar, um, I haven't checked on Banshees of Inna Sharon lately, but, you know, a lot of those numbers were, were down this year. And festivals create that want to see factor. You know, I mean, when, when you see something at the Parkway in May um, that's going to open later, they're counting on you to tell your friends, oh, I saw that at the Maryland Film Festival. It was really good. Or even want to maybe go back and see it again. Um, and so festivals are an important part of the ecosystem for that reason. But, you know, they all, they're also maybe the end, you know, the ecosystem, like they're their own little distribution circuit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's even more important for movies that that might be their only theatrical showing um, before they, they jump to streaming or something like that. So yeah, you're right. I mean, they're, they're more important than ever. Um, I also agree with you that it's, that it's probably a more comprehensive problem, not problem, a comprehensive challenge in terms of just that block and station north and, you know, things that I am underqualified to comment on. But it's, it's a, it's a multi, 
right. It's level not just the issue. theater. Right. It's not just Absolutely. the theater. Right, right. Absolutely. There's other stuff going on there. Yeah. Uh four one zero six six two eight seven eight zero. What do you think about the Parkway Theater? What do you think about going to movies? We talk about this, we've been talking about it now for a few years here on Midday at the Movies. Our email midday at WYPR.org. Where's your head at when it comes to attending live screenings in a theater as opposed to streaming? You can tweet us at midday WYPR. Let's go to the phones to Phil, who's on the line from Baltimore. Phil, welcome to Midday with Ann Hornaday. Good afternoon. Happy New Year to all of you. Thank you. And you too. Yes, uh, I want to say, uh, Tom, I lived in Boston uh, in 1975-76, that period of time. And now, I never went to Coolidge Corner, but there were some other theaters in Boston. I saw some interesting movies, uh, including Mighty Python and the Holy Grail. That, uh, <laughs> that was very funny. And Back here in Baltimore in the 80s, I went to the Charles Theater a lot. I lived in Mount Vernon Place then. And it was a nice deal they had at that time. You could buy a book of, uh, for $25, you could get 10 tickets. Yeah, I remember that. Right. You remember that? Yeah. Yes. And uh, they showed uh, some older movies as well as recent ones, too. And uh, I enjoyed that. I know they now have five screens, but... Excuse me, I somehow enjoyed it, the memory of the time, but even though you had one screen, but it was just kind of a neat atmosphere. You know, you could meet people. I met, I met John Waters there once, and uh, the lady that owned the Charles, I think her name is Moran, I believe. I could be wrong. But, well, Pat uh, Moran is a, is a casting director for John oh, okay. Waters and for his movies and stuff. But yeah, well, thanks for the call, Phil. I appreciate it. And it's true. I mean, and Anne, this is what you're you're saying. People have a connection to the -hmm. theater they go to see the movies. And certainly the Charles Theater uh, has, uh, has, you know, engendered that uh, very warm feeling for, for many, many people over many many years. And the question is, you know, uh, does it matter that the Charles Theater and the Parkway Theater are so proximate to each other? Uh, would it matter if, uh, you know, the, the Parkway Theater were located someplace else? I don't know. I mean, I'm not smart enough to, you know, parse that kind of stuff out. But, um, you know, there's, there's a, as you say, there's a lot of other things going on in that neighborhood uh, that, that need to be addressed in order for the Parkway to succeed as well. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Anne, we're going to talk about your top 10 picks for movies for 2022. Awards season is upon us. The Golden Globes uh, are taking place Tuesday night. Uh, the Oscars are just a couple of months away, so uh, we'll see what the uh, what the judges say or what the voters say when it comes to those kinds of awards. But we'll uh, first and foremost see what you have to say about the top 10 movies of 2022. And listeners, we'd love to hear your picks as well. 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. You can tweet me if you want at Tom Hall wypr. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, We'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org.
And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on the show Monday, it's Midday with the Mayor. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott will join me. He was to have joined me a couple of days ago, and then there was that horrible shooting uh, in Edmondson Village Shopping Center, which happened right as we were going on the air, right before we went on the air, and the mayor uh, had to go uh, to a press conference for that event. So we have rescheduled Mr. Mayor, and he will be with us on Monday. He's uh, announced uh, just yesterday his legislative agenda for the upcoming General Assembly session. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the group violence reduction strategy, which is going to be expanded. It's been uh, done as a pilot program in the Western District. It's now going to be expanded to the Southwestern District as well. So we'll talk uh, about the, uh, you know, the continuing efforts to reduce violence on the streets of our city. It's certainly uh, an intractable problem and one that simply needs to be fixed. Uh, and we will talk to the mayor about that on Monday. Also, we will have the latest on what's going on in Congress. Congress was scheduled to reconvene today uh, at this hour. Uh, they are expected to vote for the 12th time to confirm that Kevin McCarthy will not yet be the Speaker of the House. He may never be the Speaker of the House, or he may figure out a deal uh, to uh, get his caucus to elect him Speaker of the House. So we will have conversation about that with Russell Berman of The Atlantic Magazine. That's coming up Monday on Midday. And today it's Midday at the Movies. Our good friend Jed Dietz is traveling and not with us, but Ann Hornaday, film critic for the Washington Post, is with us. She's got a terrific book out called Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. If you would like to talk, not pictures, but talk, uh, well, you can talk in pictures if you'd like. You can just send us a tweet with a nice picture on it, at Midday WYPR. You can send us an email, midday at WYPR.org, and you can give a phone call the old-fashioned way, 410-662-8780. So, Anne, um, let's talk about uh, a couple of the movies that you, a few of the movies that you singled out as uh, really, you know, big standouts. And I'm interested that your number one movie this year was also the number one movie uh, at the box office, um, kind of by a lot, um, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, let's listen to a little clip of Top Gun Maverick. What do we have here? Yeah, here I thought we were special. Fellas, this here's Bagman. Hangman. Whatever. What the hell kind of mission is this? Everyone here is the best there is. Who the hell are they gonna get to teach us? Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. There you go. Everyone here is the best there is. That's what our producers say about this show on the days that someone else hosts it. Uh, and it's very nice. It's very nice to, to, to hear that we have the best here. So there's a lot of planes whipping through the air uh, in this movie. I haven't seen it yet, um, which is you know not unusual for movies and me. But um, this this is an important movie, though, in a lot of ways. I mean, it, this talk about bringing people back to the theaters. This one sort of single-handedly accomplished a lot of that for the movie industry this year. 
It did. And it did it. It did it in a way that I really respected. In other, it, it did it with its own form of integrity. And even just listening to that, I cannot believe that I picked it as my number. No- like, I would never have thought that would have been my number one movie of the year. But when I think about what made gave me the most pleasure, you know, and I think that's, at least for me, that's the bottom line, you know, is like, if you're going to, if you're going to get my money and my time and my tushy and the seat, you know, entertain me, take me on the journey. And this movie did, it just, it just fulfilled its promise. And it did it with um, a lot of production value. And even though I know that dialogue sounds ridiculous, um, it's, it's actually very well, I thought it was very well written. Tom Cruise, the star, he's, still a good actor, you know, behind all the bluff and the posing and the preening, the man is a good actor and he's got a great supporting cast around him. And I just, I just had a blast watching this movie and I wanted to honor it, you know, when I, with that number one slot. And like you said, it it did a lot to bring um, people back to the theater. I mean, most of the most successful movies this year theatrically were either sequels or reboots. You know, we had the, the Avatar movie, um, I think actually did manage to surpass Top Gun as the biggest um, in attendance, but uh, but so did you know? But another another high performer, which is one I wasn't as fond of, but was Elvis, um, which is you know a one off. It, it was not a sequel or a, or a franchise movie, but it it did remarkably well both with young audiences and the older people who actually remember Elvis Presley. But um, but yeah, no, I just wanted to give a little hat tip to Top Gun because I just thought it. You know, you mentioned my, you very kindly mentioned my book. And the, the big questions I asked myself as a critic is what is the artist trying to achieve and did they achieve it? And, you know, you know exactly what Top Gun is trying to achieve and it achieves it. And, you know, yeah. tip to that. Talk about managing expectations, you know. Uh, exactly. Promise, promises exactly. delivered. Yeah. Well, according promises to, um, right. yeah, according to Box Office Mojo, uh, which IMDb Pro uh, publishes, the uh, Top Gun Maverick grows $718 bucks, and uh, Avatar, for example, The Way of Water, was at $401 million, and oh, okay. Elvis was all number right. 12 at $151 million, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a yeah, whole it lot of money well. for all these. They, they all did uh, really mm-hmm. well. And interestingly, this is a movie we've talked a lot about because I had a, an erstwhile career as a professional musician, and this is Tar. Let's listen mm-hmm. to a little, uh, speaking of good acting, this is Kate Blanchett uh, and her uh, chums in Tar. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right, time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time really? it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. It sounds so erudite, you know. And by the way, doesn't it, <laughs> it really does. Uh, by the way, this whole business about we can't start without you if you're the conductor. I conducted for 45 years. They start without you all the time. 
<laughs> and they they do it just it's it's a little joke. It's a little. Right. It's a wouldn't it be? Wouldn't right. it be? Pretty, yeah. Wouldn't it be pretty to think so? Yeah. You go out, you bow, you turn around, all of a sudden they're playing, and you haven't done anything yet. And it's just a little hearty har har from 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 okay. the 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 guys in the band, you know. Oh. Um. So, but this is your number two movie of the year, and I really, yeah. You know, we talked about. It, I think they got a lot of the music stuff right. Um, okay. Which is nice, and Kate Blanchett okay. is a terrific actor. Um, I'm not sure. I thought it was the best movie I ever saw. It's right. interesting, but but so 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 uh, you know, explain yourself here, Miss Hornaday. Number two, oh. Tar. You know this kind of like Top Gun. This one just took me. I was with it all the way. I mean, I was just so enthralled. And what we just saw is pretty much the first scene of that movie, which is a. Um, like a, a New York Times talk, uh, not Times talk, a New Yorker festival yeah, talk. They're at the 92nd Street wide. And, right, and, of course. And she is, as the character, Adam uh, right. she's talking to Adam Gopnik of the New Yorker. Right. Uh -huh. So immediately there are all these And that signifiers. kind of stuff happens all the time. That's exactly. a real thing. So you're right. in the world, right? So this is just an example of complete and total world building to the point where within the first 10 minutes, you know exactly what world this is exi existing in. You know, it's 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 a very heightened, rarefied, like you said, erudite, um, mannered, you know, um, sophisticated, you know, kind of self-consciously sophisticated world. And I just thought it was so compelling. Like you said, her performance is fantastic. Um, as are the supporting, again, another one, great supporting performances, like from Nina Foch as her lover, her wife, maybe. Um, and, you know, she, it, the, the story that it tells about this ambitious, who sort of runs afoul of contemporary and changing mores, um, is very timely. And I think, you know, resonated with the times that we live in. Um, but it was just stylized and odd enough that it didn't, it felt, it just, it kept me off balance, I think, in the best sense of the word. And even the ending, which I know a lot of people have been very alienated and confused by the final scenes, I just, I just, I loved where it ended up. It made complete sense to me, and I thought it was actually kind of hilarious. But um, this is, like you said, this is a polarizing movie. I know it's a love it or hate it proposition, and I just, I just happen to love it. You're but a lover. Everybody's yeah. mileage may vary. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Now, your third uh, pick is Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, which I saw, and Linnell and I saw. We loved it. It was terrific. I don't want to talk about it because it's about sex and I don't want listeners to feel me blushing because I just I get I get squeamish talking about such things but it's a wonderful movie Emma Thompson who's just so fantastic but I do want to talk about your fourth pick which is she said oh, yes. um, which we saw uh, at the Charles Theater uh, it's about a very serious uh, topic the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault scandal here's a little clip from she said what is it exactly that we're looking at here? We're looking at extreme sexual harassment in the workplace. These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings with a producer, an employer. They were hopeful. They were expecting a serious conversation about their work or a possible project. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. They claim assault and rape. If that can happen to Hollywood actresses, who else is it happening to? Carrie Mulligan, Zoe Kazan, Patricia Clarkson is in this movie. 
Uh, they play real live uh, New York Times reporters, Megan Tui and Jody Cantor. Um, you know what I actually really like? Well, I liked everything about this movie. I thought it was written beautifully and mm-hmm. acted beautifully. The music in this movie mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's sound design, mostly. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's mixed perfectly. It is uh, introduced perfectly. It's written exquisitely, superbly. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a fantastic feature of this movie, which is not the thing that a lot of people sort of notice about this movie, because um, it's a it's a talker, you know, everybody's talking sure. all the time in this right, movie. Right, right. Um, but boy, I thought this was a real achievement. I thought it was terrific. That is fascinating to me, because, you know, I will admit that I cannot conjure it, and that tells me, though, that it was really good because you don't want it to distract. You want it to, again, help build that world and help people enter that world, but you don't want it, you don't want them thinking like, oh, what's that? And it also reminds me of the great masterful score um, that David Shire wrote for All the President's Men, which is, of course, the big kahuna, right? This Mm -hmm. is the great journalism, the greatest journalism movie ever made that something like she said is always going to kind of look back at, but you you know, it's it it's this sort of exquisite subtlety um, where these musical scores are like accompanying the the verbal, you know, the dialogue, which, like you said, that is the main event. I also want to just shout out the support again. This was a great year for supporting performances, um, and this movie exemplifies that. To me, I was with this movie and I was intrigued and interested, and then there's a scene with Samantha Morton who plays a female executive who witnessed Harvey Weinstein's depredations, reached the end of her rope and did something. And her scene, I think, just elevated this movie. You know, that's when it turned for me. And that's when I just became really emotionally involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the scene in the the restaurant in London. Yeah, she shows up. And I I just think it's one of the greatest scenes of the year. And I think hers is one of the greatest performances of the year. And I would say the same thing for Jennifer Ellie, who plays another person, uh, you know, associate of Weinstein's who was affected. But I think the value of these stories being retold on the big screen, these journalistic stories, is to give them an emotional language and emotional meaning for the audience. And those, Samantha Morton and Jennifer Ellie did that in this movie for me um, in a way that really ambushed me and... Uh, that's that's what I wanted to honor by putting it on this list. It was just it was just exquisitely done, very yeah. well done. Yeah, Ex- excellent cast. And Patricia Clarkson uh, is the great Rebecca Corbett, right? And and Rebecca Corbett is a former uh, colleague of uh, Linnell's, my wife's, uh, at the Baltimore Indeed. Sun, and mine, and yours as well. And yes. uh, you know, and so it's great to see a you know a, a Baltimore star uh, being played by a wonderful star, Patricia Clarkson. So Truly great. a star. And as I say in my review, the best hair in the business, and <laughs> Patricia Clarkson got that right. And we know what we're, those of us who know, know what we're talking about. And I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> Let's listen to a clip for your number five pick, Armageddon Time. Oh, look at you. Come here. Look at you. Oh. A young man. First day of the rest of your life. You look absolutely gorgeous. I look like a total idiot. No, you don't. I can't even have a normal knapsack. A normal uh, knapsack? Why would you want a normal knapsack when you can have this? This, this is an attache case. This is class A1. This, this says, I am ready to work. I come as a student. You just want me to be like you. 
What? You just want me to be like you. No. No, big boy. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. That's what I want. Mm, a little a little uh, revelation of one's mm. inner thoughts there. Yeah. yeah, good stuff. I've heard a lot of good things about that. I haven't got a chance to see this one, but um, this, one, this one made an impression with a lot of folks, and you liked it as well. I did. It's by James Gray, you know, who is who who it, it has gone back to his childhood several times in his movies. But this this one really got me, and it's um, you can hear it in that clip, which is he's the son of these parents who have these aspirations for him and these expectations for him. Um, he's attending public school in Queens, and while there, he befriends uh, a young a black kid, you know, and they they bond. And through that friendship, he discovers that even though his parents are constantly telling him to strive and that he has these obstacles to overcome because of their own cultural history as Jews and, you know, their own sort of striving and aspirational ambitions, he's also seeing firsthand how his own whiteness and his own privilege um, give him a leg up. And it's about this kid reconciling these two truths and these contradictory things that he's being told about himself, or at least contradictory, you know, things he's being told about himself that kind of rub, rub up against his actual lived experience. And I just think, you know, when we talk about, quote unquote, dealing with race, you know, in film or in any other subject, I, I think watching people, artists grapple with whiteness is really rare. And I think it's brave and it should be encouraged. And I think this is maybe not always a perfect, you know, example, but um, often a really warm and humane one and a compassionate one. And I want to also mention Anthony Hopkins plays his grandfather um, in a really sweet performance. But yeah, and I just, I thought it was, um, it was, it was just a nice kind of another example of a movie that's not a sequel to anything or a, you know, reboot of anything. It's just kind of a warm, human, touching story. Yeah, and um, on the theme of race and films, we have a tweet from Aaron who says, how can film festivals support community engagement and not just gathering? Uh, at the Carroll County Arts Center, uh, and Aaron says, I and the Carroll County Arts Center ran a black film festival in the fall that had more conversation and learning elements built in and brought new and repeat audience members. So thanks for that tweet from Aaron. Uh, Michael says, isn't Kate Blanchett impersonating Marin Alsip in the way that she's talking in that clip? Hmm. Um, uh, perhaps she is. And uh, if Marin Alsip were to hear that comment, she would be upset about it because she's upset with all the, the, the comparisons to Marin uh, uh, because it's a, a woman conductor. And obviously, you know, Marin, the first woman to lead a major symphony orchestra in the United States. So it's interesting. That she She's, she's never going to be able, Marin is never going to be able to disassociate herself with, with Tar. We have another uh, interesting email from uh, someone in Baltimore. Uh, good luck to you, Leo Grand. A little-known trivia fact, the love interest character in that movie, a guy named Daryl McCormick, uh, uh, the emailer says that uh, his grandfather and uncle live in Maryland, and both are Baltimoreans. I did not know that. Fabulous. That's and, wonderful. And we can only, I we just can, think he's, he was fantastic. You know, Emma boy, he Tom sure it, was. He it was takes great. guts to go up again, you know, not against Emma Thompson, but it's just the two of them. And he 
hit it out of the park. He's just charming. He's also in a really neat Apple series called Bad Sisters. If you if you want another Daryl McCormick fix, he's just fabulous. Yeah, I've heard good things fan. about Bad Sisters. Yeah, yeah. but he, is, he was that was the two of them together were just amazing. Oh. And Emma Thompson is so fantastic. Oh, Everything about fabulous. her is fantastic. It's just amazing. So here's one. We just have a couple okay. of minutes left. But your tenth pick. So you got to pick okay. the top ten, right? So somebody's okay. got to be last. But of course, I consider know. that you know you're on the list when so many you know, hundreds of films or not. The Martha Mitchell effect is your number 10 pick. Uh, We don't have time for a clip, but boy, and this is the documentary. This is not the Showtime series that starred Julia Roberts and whatnot. This is a doc, right? It's on Netflix, and it's a profile of John Mitchell's wife, uh, the John Mitchell famous uh, from the Watergate era. So so why this one? Of all the docs even in the world that uh, you, you confronted this year, um, what stands out about the Martha Mitchell effect? You know, I just, for one thing, I wanted to honor, I, I was really struck by um, how many f- good first films we saw this year. And and another one, um, the, the, the my number nine pick is a movie called Afterson, which I know Jed is a huge fan of as well, uh, by Charlotte Wells. And um, there were just so many good first films, and I and this was another one. This was directed by two um, young women, Anne Alvergu and Deborah McClutchy, and I can't remember. One of them had already directed something, but the other one hadn't, so it kind of counts to me as a first one. But you know, the short film is a um, is a rarefied genre, and I think it's so much harder to do something in a limited amount of time than it is to do in the usual running time now of two and a half hours. Ugh. They do in 40 minutes, you know, that something that most people couldn't do in two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. They just condense and distill Martha Mitchell's story so eloquently and, again, emotionally. And they rehabilitate her her um, reputation with a lot of sensitivity and elegance. And I just thought they deserved um, a little a little recognition for All that. Right. Well, and recognition they have gotten right here on Midday. By the way, Women Talking, another movie you've written about in the Post, opens on the 13th. So that's next week at the Charles Theater. So folks can go check that out. Uh, there's another one that you've written about called Corsage, which is also at the Charles, and that's opening tonight. So that's all the time we have. Thank you, uh, Anne. Happy New Year again, and we will talk to you next month. Thank you, Tom. Happy New Year, everybody. Anne Hornaday is the film critic for the Washington Post. Her book is terrific. You should check it out. It's called Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. Coming up, theater critic Jay Wynn Russick will join me with a review of a new production of The Tempest at the Roundhouse Theater in Bethesda. Stay with us.